You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we are going down a path I have not ventured until now, and that is an interview. I've had lots of opportunities to interview people on this show, but I have not pulled the trigger. However, I got the chance to read a new book, Everest 1922, the epic story of the first attempt on the world's highest mountain, by writer and filmmaker Mick Conifray. I decided to do an interview because after covering George Mallory and then Hillary and Tenzing about a year and a half ago, I fell in love with these stories, and I just wanted to learn more and share that stuff with you guys. So, some background for today's podcast. Mick Conifray is a filmmaker and writer from England. He has done all sorts of documentaries for the BBC and American TV, mostly about mountaineering. He has also written several books, including looks at the first descents of Everest and K2. As noted, his latest book is Everest 1922, looking at the first attempt on the world's highest mountain. It's a great read. I love the detail Mick provides in the book about the people, events leading up to the climb, and the expedition itself. Despite reading a ton of books about this era, I learned so much. Everest 1922 is full of all sorts of fun stories and details about the expedition, and it really expands on the episodes we did on the show about George Mallory. Mick's new book is available now, and I very much recommend it. I have put links to the book in our show notes, as well as on our website, explorerspodcast.com. In today's interview, we talked about these early attempts on Everest, plus a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging discussion. Otherwise, that's it. Let's get on with our interview with Mick Conifray, the author of the new book, Everest 1922. Alrighty, today we are here with Mick Conifray. He is the author of the new book, Everest 1922, about the first coordinated effort to climb Mount Everest. Uh, Mick, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Excellent. We just covered a lot of this territory about a year and a half ago on the show, and I loved it. I learned so much. And when your book came out, uh, it's literally being released like right now. And uh, I got a chance to read it. And I would have loved to have had it during my own series that I did. But I just wanted to do more on this because this is a subject that I think that we are so missing a lot of the great stories of. And I read your book and it was just like, okay, this is someone that'll be really interesting. The book covers the initial attempts to climb Everest in 1922. It also covers the 1921 reconnaissance expedition, things we covered in our our series on George Mallory too. But one of the things that I think is really fascinating is the mindset and the world of these people coming out of probably the most cataclysmic event in world history to Europe, uh, World War I, and kind of talk about how the Great War affected them. Well, the question is, did the Great War affect them? I mean, that's a kind of assumption, you know. And I think that in, uh, obviously, there's another very good book, Wade Davis's Into the Silence, which very much is about the idea that these characters were very much influenced by their wartime experience and it gave them a particular attitude to to, to risk, for example. And I, I, I do understand that and I can see where that's coming from. But I'm not necessarily sure that I would agree with it, you know, because... Um, if you actually look at the composition of, of the actual team, that sure, most of them were soldiers and uh, or had served at some point during the, the First World War, but, but several of them were professional soldiers who had begun soldiering before the First World War. And so, for example, Charlie Bruce, the, the leader of the expedition, Jeffrey Bruce, his uh, nephew, were uh, Edward Norton, they were career soldiers who had been in the army before the First World War. And any soldier who had served on the northwest frontier, the border of India and Afghanistan, would have been toughened, you know, arguably to a greater extent than than anybody, than people who had been 
in the Great War or to an equal extent. And so so, so their ex- the experience that they brought to it wasn't just the experience of being in the trenches in World War One. it was of being professional soldiers beforehand. And if you look at the early history of, of Everest before the First World War, it is professional soldiers who are involved in it. You know, the first kind of recorded incident where people say, hey, let's go and climb Everest is um, Charles Bruce and Francis Young husband, uh, who were both soldiers in the 1890s. The first person who uh, gets into Tibet and gets close enough to see Everest is John Knoll, who is again another professional soldier working for the British Army in, in British India. And this is this is before the First World War. Um, so the soldiering and mountaineering, particularly in the Himalayas, were connected because the only people who got access to the Himalayas, the only people who got anywhere close to it, uh, a lot of those people were soldiers. And if you were, so say somebody like Jeffrey Bruce um, and, and Charles Bruce, that they became, they, they, they weren't, well, Jeffrey Bruce wasn't really a mountaineer at all. You know, he was, a, he was initially taken on as the transport officer, but eventually took part in one of the summit attempts in 1922. And he was able to do that because he'd been toughened up by operating at high altitude as a soldier patrolling the northwest frontier, you know, in the modern day Karakoram Mountain. So, um, so I, I think that, that, you know, first of all, there is a strong connection between soldiering and mountaineering, but it's not just because of the First World War. And, um, you know, it seems to me that that mountaineering has, has always been about taking risks. And if you go back to the, the earliest expeditions in the Himalayas, the, the first attempt on K2, the first attempt on Kanchenjunga, the, the first attempt on Nanga Parbat, which was in, in the 1890s, that people were taking risks then, and they knew that going to the Himalayas meant taking bigger risks. And so, so I would sort of disagree with the thesis that because of the first First World War, people came out and and had a different attitude towards risk. Because I think that there were expeditions before the First World War, and they weren't fundamentally different to how they carried it out in the 1920s. Excellent. That's awesome. You talk about some of these uh, the people involved in the expedition, Charles Bruce, and uh, and obviously we everyone knows George Mallory and stuff like that. They have some characters on this thing. Uh, Bruce being one of the interesting men of the of the era, <laughs> I think, has a little bit of a Teddy Roosevelt kind of swagger to him. How he just can sit with the the Sherpas and and drink with them and have fun and and then still command everything. Who are some of your favorite characters? from these early expeditions? Uh, yeah, well, I would very much agree. I mean, I think that they, you know, the sort of people who are drawn to this world were often a little bit eccentric, you know, and the people who are drawn to the Himalayas were frequently sort of interested in the in the Orient and, and enjoyed meeting, you know, Tibetan and uh, culture and Indian culture and Chinese culture. Um, and, and kind of often quite larger than life. And I mean, I think that, that Charles Bruce was literally larger than life. He was he was slightly overweight. He used to joke that his liver was so big that it needed two people to carry it. Uh, before he went on the expedition, he had to endure a medical exam. And the, the examiner came out by, you know, with this kind of list of wounds and kind of damage to his body. And in spite of all of that, he, he was still uh, deemed to be fighting fit. He was a, a very charismatic leader who, who clearly enjoyed working with Sherpas and, and Tibetan people and, and um, uh, Nepalese. And so he genuinely enjoyed it. And so it was kind of easy for him to be the leader of the porters. And to, it was a crucial for the British expedition to, to have the porters on side because they were the people who were going to carry the stuff up the mountain, and so their their morale was really important. And and what was great about Bruce was he genuinely liked them. He genuinely could speak their language. He genuinely enjoyed mucking around with them. They were he his kind of guys. They were he was a Sherpas and and Boches and Tibetans were quite macho kind of people, and also quite playful as well. And he he really liked that. So I think that um, General Bruce is a kind of yeah a great character. George Mallory is a completely different, very interesting character very artistic you know his background was 
Um, he'd been at uh, Cambridge. He, um, his friends were bohemian artists. And so he had a completely different side to him that he, you know, he was famously painted by Duncan Grant, a, a British artist. He, his friends included people in what they call the, um, the Bloomsbury set. And so he brought a completely different kind of sensibility to it and was a complex, rich and interesting character. You know, George Finch, the Australian who uh, was the team's de facto oxygen expert, completely different, you know, from a, um, he was the only person on the expedition who wasn't British. Um, he was a scientist, had a completely different mindset, a completely different way of approaching things. So whereas, for example, Mallory was very chaotic and was always losing things and wasn't very good with technology, he would put the, the plates in the plate camera in the wrong way round. <laughs> you know, he was famous for getting things. He was really hopeless with equipment. Um, Finch was the opposite. He was really good with equipment. He was very uh, methodical. He was very systematic. He's the only person on the expedition who, who had some purpose-built clothing uh, made for him beforehand, which was the precursor of the modern-day um, down suit. Um, he, he worked out a way of, of putting a rubber coating on top of his maps so that they would be water and wind resistant. He took a lot of photographs. He he developed his own film. He was very methodical and and indeed also a very, very good climber. So it, it, what's so interesting about the 1922 expedition is, is, is the range of people. They're, they're mainly pucker British chaps who've been to public school and uh, either into the army or to Oxford and Cambridge, but they're not all like that. And it's it's the Mallorys and it's the Finches and it's the Bruce's, Bruce's who make it really rich and interesting because they're just there's something very idiosyncratic about them. When I did the Mallory series, uh, I touched on his, this reputation he has as being kind of, like you say, chaotic and forgetful and stuff. And I don't know if I emphasized it enough, but he would drive people crazy sometimes with his, with his uh, just flightiness, I guess, or whatever. But like you said, Finch is the opposite yet. They were both considered some of the the finest climbers of of their, their day. And it showed now, Finch and Mallory did not necessarily get along. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I would say that was true. I think that if, I think that in fact Mallory really saw Finch as a rival. Mallory was a, a kind of a complex character who was very ambitious, but at the same time uh, was quite generous uh, to other people. And you know, he, he never Mallory, for example, never became the leader on any of the expeditions. But at the same time, he clearly wanted to be the first person to climb Everest. And I think that if you look at his diary, there are quite often quite little barbed comments about George Finch. He was quite critical of him. And I do think, really, he saw him as a bit of a rival. And uh, I think Finch probably saw Mallory as a rival as well. You know, I think Finch was envious of Mallory in that Mallory was a golden boy of the British establishment. Everybody loved him. Everybody thought he was a great climber. Finch had learned his climbing living in Switzerland. He'd gone to school in, in Zurich, I think it was, and he learned his mountaineering living on, in, in, on the continent. And so it's undoubtedly, I think, the case that he was a much better snow climber, you know, that he had experience of, of, of doing a lot of alpine climbing. Mallory had done some alpine climbing, but he'd also done a lot of rock climbing in, in North Wales, um, so, you know, arguably they were, they were both at the top of their game and, and there was a little friction between them. And then afterwards, when they came to lecture about the um, expedition, they were very much pitted against each other and the people who promoted the lectures. And they specifically had them arguing about, uh, about oxygen, whether it was valid or invalid to use oxygen on, on Everest. And because... Finch, although he, in, in some respects, didn't actually initiate it, but Finch became very much the team's oxygen expert. And Mallory, in 1922 at least, was very against oxygen. And he famously called this a damnable heresy and thought it was, and agreed with the sort of line that it wasn't sporting, it wasn't aesthetic uh, to climb with oxygen, whereas Finch was a much more scientific, pragmatic sort of person that said, look, if oxygen is going to get us to the top more quickly or, or make it possible, then we've got to go for it. It's stupid not to, you know, it's scientific 
to see the benefits of, of oxygen. So very much Mallory was the non-oxygen guy, Finch was the oxygen guy, and so they were kind of pitted against each other during and after the expedition. So that added to that little bit of rivalry that they were both top climbers and and, and wanted to be uh, the first person to get to the top, you know. With regard to oxygen and anything else on the, the expedition, what were the key issues that you saw that came up in there that really made for good drama or just really key points? Uh, what were the things that happened uh, and, and, and issues that cropped up? I think the thing about the, the 1922 expedition was that it was the first expedition, the first attempt. You know, there had been a reconnaissance in the in the previous year. And so and so it was quite hyped up. You know, in Britain, they spend a lot of time trying to raise money in the way that they rose the way that they raised money was to say this was going to be a great thing. And if you could step onto the top of Everest, it would be great for the whole of humanity. And it would be, it was a little bit like the kind of one small step for a man, one huge step for mankind, that all of that rhetoric. And so when they went out there, they definitely took with them a kind of pressure to succeed. And, and that definitely, to an extent, informed what happened. For example, the, the, the 1922 expedition ended with a disaster when, when uh, there was an avalanche and it killed seven porters. Now, really, they shouldn't have made a third attempt. Everybody knew they shouldn't have made a good, uh, made a third attempt. Charles Bruce certainly knew that, and uh, uh, because it was clear that they were all exhausted, that the the weather was turning, um, and it was just a, a dangerous thing to do. It shouldn't really have been done. But the reason why Charles Bruce, as the expedition leader, said yes to Mallory when Mallory suggested let's try for a third time was that in the back of his mind, he's thinking, well, all the organisers back home want me to come back with success. And, and I have, I'm, you know, although we've done really well in the first attempt, we haven't got to the top. Um, so if we can give it one more shot, then who am I to say no to George Mallory? I think probably was what was going through his mind, you know. This was certainly a, a sort of British drama, and they felt that and a global drama. They'd sold the story around the world, you know, that they felt this kind of thing, you know, we've... we've uh, We've we've got to succeed here, and and that's is obviously so different from a sort of modern Everest climb a hundred years later, where it could be just as dramatic, but it's generally a personal drama. You know, you have kind of decided that your life's ambition is to get to the top of Everest. You sign up with a team which are going there, and and if you get to the top, that's great. But it's not as if the rest of the world cares, really. They, this is your personal drama. Your friends, your family, your immediate circle might care about it, but but they're not going to write about it on the front page of of uh, the Times because it's been done before. Whereas in 1922, it hadn't been done before, and the the, the people had been selected, a team had been formed, letters had been sent out to raise money, you know, events had been held to raise money. There's a lot of expectation there. And that's what makes it, that's why people are forced or force themselves to do things which perhaps are against their better judgment, you know. And, and that's what, you know, drama is what happens, isn't it, when people are under pressure. And, and that's why exploration is interesting because people are under pressure. And it's how do you react when you're under pressure, you know. So people are pushing themselves a bit harder than they should do that. Um, and they're making decisions based on, what they hope the outcome is going to be rather than necessarily what their better judgment is. I, I don't want to obsess on Mallory because I think we obsess on Mallory a lot. It's easy to. He was described as being obsessive at times about climbing efforts. Was he? Was Did you see that? Or was it just like all the others and we just kind of latch on to it because it makes for a good story? I think that Mallory was obsessive about mountaineering but he also had other interests in his life. And so he, he actually, he was quite conflicted at certain points about whether he should go to Everest or not. Not in 1922, but in 1924, he definitely had an ambivalence as to whether he should go there. He had just started a new job. He, he believed passionately in education, particularly for workers. He had just started working on a... Uh, a new job where he was lecturing to to workers in the evening, and also he had a wife and two children. So I think that it was a real tussle for him deciding would he go to Everest for a third time in 1924. 
1922 that I think he definitely wanted to go. And it's also, he, he wasn't really interested in anything else other than climbing, you know, that whereas other members of the team were quite interested in finding out about local culture and would want to go to the temples and would be interested in Buddhism and would be interested in Tibetan life. Mallory just wasn't interested at all, in spite of the fact that he had came from a kind of artistic background and had friends who were painters and friends who were writers. When it came to being on location, as it were, in the Himalayas, all he wanted to do was climb. And so even before the main attempt on Everest gets underway, he tries a smaller mountain called Sankari. Um, and then when it came to, to, to Everest, he was very focused on wanting to get to the top. So I think very much he's obsessive in the sense that once he's there, all he wants to do is climb and all he wants to do is get to the top of Everest. But when he's not there, he's got another quite rich life. And so he, he's torn between, between his different desires. And that's what makes him interesting, you know. So he certainly, you know, he certainly was in, in 1924 very ambivalent as to whether he should go there or not, you know. And um, eventually he decided he had to, you know, but, uh, um, but that was a struggle for him. I want to touch on modern Everest. The very first thing I think you talk about in your book, and that is today climbing Everest is almost like a corporate thing or, or it's, it's like a, it's a two week excursion, you know, and you pay $50,000 or whatever, and they fly it here and they do this. And have we lost some of that uh, um, understanding of how incredibly hard and unknown this was a hundred years ago, even 50 or 60 years ago when Tenzing and Hillary did it. What is the, the, the really huge thing that you see that's different that you think people don't necessarily realize today about what it was a hundred years ago? I think it's just that sense of, of absolutely going into the unknown. In 1921, when the reconnaissance happened, there wasn't a map of, there wasn't even a map of Everest. When they they when they got close to Everest, a lot local people weren't that interested. And so, for example, they had there were two different mountains which they called Chomolunga, and it was a question of which one, you know. And so, so you really were walking off the map, and also nobody had any idea whether you could survive at high altitude. The opinions were very um, were very contradictory, and so there was a real sense of risk and of the unknown. Whereas now everybody knows you can get to the top of Everest. And if you're an elite mountaineer, then you might want to get to the top of Everest under your own steam, not using oxygen. If you're somebody who doesn't consider themselves an elite mountaineer, you would invariably use oxygen because it, it makes it possible in a way that uh, it removes some of the risk to it. So, and again, I come back to that thing that, it, you know, in, in the 1920s, it, it was a public event. It was an international event, which everybody was interested in. It wasn't possible for it to be your own private drama because as a private individual, you couldn't go there. It took years, decades, just to negotiate passage through Tibet to get to Everest. Most people now climb Everest from Nepal in, until 1949, 48, 49. You couldn't get into Nepal. Nobody could. So now everything is kind of easy, you know, up to a point. But at the same time, it's still very easy to get killed on Everest because it's a very dangerous place. And if, mm -hmm. if things go wrong, they frequently go cataclysmically wrong. Um, so the risk has been mitigated, but it's still very high. Well, there's, there's I think, over 100 bodies on, on Everest today that have been left there. With the amount of people, and then, and then you see now trash and things like that. Do you see any sort of regulation or anything that could be done to alleviate that things, or is it just too much of a business now that that they're just going to keep queuing people up the hill and, and letting them go? If you look at Mount Denali or McKinley, as it once was, there's a lot of regulation there now, and people have to take their trash out. People have to take out their excrement. So it is possible if you have a rigorous policy, you can force people to, to leave the mountain in a very clean condition. 
But obviously, this is it's a slightly different situation in Nepal and Tibet, where there is a, a greater economic need uh, to have the largest possible number of people going there, and and less money to kind of uh, to ensure that they leave it in a clean condition. But I think people exaggerate how dirty it is. I mean, since the nineteen I can't remember when it was nineteen eighties, maybe nineteen nineties, there have been several Everest cleanup expeditions. Sure, it may be the case that there is a certain number of corpses high in the mountain. The reason why they're not taken away is is not because people, because people are kind of they're not a sense of litter, but they're just it's quite dangerous to do that. And so there's a sort of difference between the waste which is left, which is simply uh, uh, which is litter really, and people being lazy, and um, and and things where it would be very difficult to bring a corpse down, you know, and uh, or, or it, it would be very it would be dangerous, and you're having to work out do the dangers outweigh the benefits, you know? So, so, but as I say, I, th- I think on the other hand, I think people do exaggerate how bad it is. When I went to Everest Base Camp, for example, 20 years ago, it, it wasn't dirty, you know, there wasn't a massive amount of litter around. Um, and, uh, and, and definitely both the Nepali and the Chinese Tibetan government, you know, they're aware of this and I think it will gradually get better, you know, um, so, yeah, you know, it's not as bad as people say it is, I don't think. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusion supply. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. What attracted you to doing this latest book, the, the Everest 1922? I had made a lot of documentaries for the BBC about mountaineering and exploration. And uh, so the first reason why I wrote books, I wrote a book about the Everest 1953 expedition was because whilst making the documentary, uh, we both gathered a lot of research information which we couldn't put into an hour-long film. Uh, But it also surprised me that there hadn't really been very much written about it in the 19... 50s there were lots of books by the official expedition accounts and Edmund Hillary and and Tenzing but between the 1950s and the year 2000 that there were no books at all written about it it was included in lots of bigger books about the Himalayas or bigger books about Everest within the expeditions of the 1920s and my latest book Everest 22 this was slightly more familiar ground there have been lots of people who've written a lot about Mallory kind of probably the most famous character involved in the Everest story. But strangely, again, it struck me that the 1922 expedition had been slightly ignored because everybody was just interested in what happened two years later in 1924 when Mallory and Irving may or may not have got to the summit. And they weren't really interested in the precursor expedition. And so I thought, well, this is a little bit strange. And obviously, with it being the 100th anniversary this year, it's a good opportunity to take stock and say, well, 
what is different today to how it was then, but also to kind of give a fairly detailed account of, of what happened in 1922. And, and because the, the characters from the 20s were very, very different from the characters from the 1950s. They share some similarities, but the post-war team who made the first attempt were very different from the kind of the pucker English chaps of the 1920s. Uh, and so that made it interesting to me. You mentioned the 1953 people expedition, and you said they're, they're, they're very different people. Those obvious differences, they have a, a Sherpa and a New Zealander going up onto the top of the mountain, while everyone else back in 1922 and 24 was British, save for uh, Finch. What else was, uh, you talked about how different, what else about those guys that was so different about the approach and things like that, that let them succeed uh, as well? As you say, the, the, the crucial difference in the 1950s was that was Tenzing. And, and Tenzing, that being said, was an exceptional character. And in the, in the 1920s, the idea that a Sherpa might have accompanied them to the summit would have been inconceivable uh, because at that stage, the, uh, the the local people of the Himalayas just weren't interested in mountaineering at all. And so they were tough characters and, you know, who were used to working at heights, but would never have had the time or the inclination or the resources to have gone mountaineering for sport. But by the 50s, that's a change. And there have been enough Sherpas and uh, um, and Tibetans on expeditions for them to both get very good at it technically and and also to, in the case of, of Tenzing, to actually want to be part of it. You know, he was very different from most other people and he actually wanted to climb Everest. None of the, the Sherpas in the 1920s, they did it because they were earning money and they enjoyed it. They liked the British because they were quite, you know, they were all, as I say, quite macho characters and they enjoyed the camaraderie of it and um, but fundamentally, they did it for money. They were poor people, and somebody comes along and says, "If you carry this load for me, we'll pay you a lot of money." And so they say yes, you know. So, so the the the, the changing role of the Sherpas is very significant. But very much the people from the nineteen twenties are, you know, quite a few of them are sort of Victorian. Charles Bruce is a Victorian character. Francis Young, husband, the person who was the head of the Everest Committee. Uh, was a Victorian character. So they're really taking you back into an earlier era of the British Empire, the British being in charge of, of India. By the 1950s, the empire was gone and uh, the, the influence was still there to an extent, but but the British were no longer top dogs. Other countries were uh, making attempts on Everest. In 1952, a Swiss team almost all got very high um, on Everest. So there was now a sort of in the 50s, there was a sense of international competition, whereas really until the Second World War, everybody knew that no other foreign climber would ever get into Tibet because the only people who had any power in the region were the British. And uh, so American climbers might want to go to Everest, Germans might want to go to Everest, but they knew that they wouldn't get permission because they didn't have the diplomatic clout uh, was what it was really about. Um, but... Certainly, by the, the the sensibility in the fifties, also is different in the sense that uh, there is an acceptance of the value of science, whereas in the nineteen twenties, there's a bit of ambivalence about it. On the the expeditions of the twenties, George Finch is carrying the scientific banner, saying, "Let's do this efficiently. Let's have the warmest possible clothing. Let's try and have oxygen equipment that works. You know, let's do this. Let's eat the right food. Let's be all very rational about this." And everybody else is saying, well, hang on a minute, it's not quite sporting, you know, and uh, oh, do you, aren't you trying a little bit too hard, you know? Um, and But by the 50s, there's an acceptance that, you know, yeah, science works for us. And now we can have oxygen equipment, which is relatively reliable. You know, now we can, we're going to go there, but we're going to test every single tent available. We're going to develop new clothing. We're going to develop new climbing boots. Um, you know, we will be systematic in our approach to things. But that being said, you know, after all of that, you've got to remember that that in 1924, that Norton and Somerville got to 28,100 feet. They got to within 1,000 feet of the summit. You should never forget that. They, they got very, very high. And even on the first attempt, they got to 27,000 feet. So for all the primitive equipment, 
uh, for all the in- unsystematic approach that you could say they took, they still almost succeeded in, in, in 1924. You know, it's quite possible that Norton could have got to the top, but he didn't, you know. Uh, um, he withdrew, realising he couldn't quite make it that day. Now, you touched on, uh, on Tenzing. One of the, the great stories that I found out of, out of the Everest, the 53 out of Tenzig story and stuff, was the almost like the reclaiming or the, the claiming of, of climbing status, climbers, by the Sherpas, the Nepali people and stuff like that. Till today, now they're, they're not just the pack guys. They are climbers uh, unparalleled in this world. I love that story. And you talk about a little bit in the book. And just you mentioned some of the amazing things they've done already recently climbing. Uh, and I just wonder if you could just talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, what you have to remember is that in the 20s, right up to the 1950s, the European mountaineers and American mountaineers on, on K2, for example, felt it was very much their job to look after the Sherpas, you know, and that they would escort them from one camp to another. And whereas now it's the opposite way around on commercial expeditions, it's the Sherpas who are escorting the Europeans, you know, who feel a duty of care towards them. Certainly they felt a duty of care towards uh, the Sherpas and their Tibetan porters in the, in the 20s up to the 1950s. And to a large extent, the, the, the Sherpas were not that interested in getting to the top. You know, famously in, on the first ever ascent of an 8,000-metre peak, Annapurna, in 1950, Ang Taki, who was considered, again, one of the very famous Sherpas, he was offered the opportunity to go to the summit, and he said no. You know, he thought, obviously thought, why, am I, why would I do this? And subsequently, it turned out that the people who did go to the summit came back with very severe frostbite. So perhaps he wasn't kind of so stupid after all, you know. Tenzing was just different in the sense that he definitely wanted to get to the summit and thought of himself as an equal to to any of the Europeans, you know. And um, and then obviously today with Nims Purgil, who's not actually a Sherpa, he's from another Nepali, I can't quite remember the name of the ethnic group he's from, but he's another Nepali climber. And he has just done this awesome um, winter ascent of K2 with some with an all Nepali team. Um, he has just climbed all the 8,000 metre peaks in record time. So there is no question that in Himalayan climbing now that the uh, that Sherpas are you know some of the best climbers in the world. You know, so uh, um, where so they're no longer can just be considered assistants. But that being said, again, you know, you have to in the 19 the first ascent of K2 almost happened in, in um, 1939, German-American climber Fritz Wiesner and his partner, Pasang Dawa Lama, was, was a Sherpa. So it was starting to change just before the Second World War and then changed dramatically with the arrival of Tenzing in the 1950s. But really, it's only in the last 20 years that you've seen a very significant number of of um, Sherpa climbers. And really it is kind of, you know, only even more recently that you've seen all uh, Nepali climbing expeditions. Um, and so that is, a, that is a sea change. You have a wide range of experience, as you said, you know, you're a filmmaker and you've done lots of stories on various different mountains. And what's the story that people don't realize is the greatest story out there? Everyone knows Mallory and Irvin and, you know, and everyone knows Hillary and Tenzing. What's the, the, the story that is so good that I should be looking to do that on my show that I should be talking about? Uh, I mean, there's lots of great mountaineering stories. I mean, what people, the thing about mountaineering literature is that a lot of it is, is what you might call painography. The, the, certainly, if you look at Annapurna, um, the the Morris Herzog book or Touching the Void, the famous Joe Simpson book. It's it's all about suffering and how much I suffered, you know. And so in a funny kind of way, the when people succeed, that often people think, oh, it's a little bit boring. And so in, in a, to an extent, that was 
uh, one of the feelings about the, the 1953 British Everest expedition was that, oh, it was like a military operation. It all went successfully. It was like, it all went like clockwork. But of course, anybody who knows anything about the military and military operations, well, sometimes they go supremely well, but frequently they go supremely badly. And in fact, there were, there were many, there was much more tension on the 1953 Everest expedition than 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 people think, you know, and uh, there were many more points where things could have gone wrong. But uh, I think there are there are kind of thousands of stories out there, you know, they're they're interesting in different ways. The story of the first ascent of McKinley is a, in of Denali is a is kind of fascinating and very has very comical aspects to it and the whole fakery of Frederick Cook pretending he got to the top and then these strange characters the sourdough miners who who tell the world that they've got to put a flagpole on the top of Denali and then and then sort of realize they put it on the wrong peak because there are more than there's more than one peak and then Hudson stuck the um the British missionary who who succeeds and uh so I, you know, I think there's there's an, an awful lot of of great stories out there. I, um, I can't say there's one desperately unknown one which I. Uh, which... No problem. I, I just was, you know, like I say, fishing for ideas too. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but um... oh, well, well, then you should read the Last Blue Mountain. Amazing story. It's called the Last Blue Mountain. It's by an English journalist called Ralph. I can't remember his second name offhand, but it's a story of an attempt on a mountain in. In, in the Himalayas, where everything goes absolutely disastrously wrong. Tremendous heroism involved and just kind of such terrible luck. Yeah. Uh, so that's a great tale. I always kind of realize, not always, but often realize some of the best stories we have are, as you said, they're, they're tragedies. Even if you look at Shackleton's endurance stuff, I mean, literally nothing goes right. They get stuck in the ice. <laughs> the ship sinks. They have to cross the ice. They have to cross the, the 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 water. They have to cross the mountains. All that stuff should never have happened if things had gone well at the beginning. So it's a lot of times it's overcoming tragedy and things like that with these stories. I always have a great uh, appreciation when explorers do things right. <laughs> and uh, you know, I talk about uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition where. They spent, was it three, four years going across the country, the United States and back. They only lost one man, and that was to a burst appendix. So there really wasn't anything they could do about that. And to have done that was just extraordinary for the time and place, you know, to have 30, 40 men make it back and live. Uh, I do appreciate people who do things right, and, and, but it sometimes loses the drama, as you said. Is there anything else special about the book or the story that you really want to talk about? Yeah, I, I, just the last thing I'd say that, you know, what makes the uh, the expeditions of the 1920s so different as well from modern ones is the kind of issue of communications. That, you know, now it's commonplace for, for people to be making telephone calls from the summit of Everest, tweeting from the summit of Everest. Certainly you'd expect to have a live transmissions going on from base camp um, but i think that you don't people don't quite appreciate how how utterly different it was in the 20s when messages are, are literally carried out and the further that you get away from the nearest telegraph station the uh the longer it takes to get back and 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 because of this you get strange things starting to happen where because one messenger may have have hurt his leg and got ill. Another messenger gets there more quickly, or you know, you might have a couple of weeks when you've got no news at all, and then suddenly a week when you get all three expeditions, uh, news of all three attempts um, coming in at the same time, and so so that created a very kind of strange atmosphere for the people who are back home trying to work out what's going on because people disappear for a long time. And then suddenly you hear about them and uh, and then you get confused because you've got one telegram which is coming back, which says, oh, well, we're all coming home now. And then and then the, but the previous one, which arrived the day before, said, oh, yeah, the, the third attempt is about to happen. That issue of the communications is is so very different. And, and, and obviously the other thing it feeds into 
is weather forecasting, you know, that, that now it is kind of taken as a given that, that you'll have very good weather forecasting for the Himalayas. It's obviously a, a difficult place to predict and, you know, weather is never, is rarely absolutely predictable. But, but basically, you know, teams go to Everest now, they, they're constantly looking at weather information. They look for what they call the best weather window and and in the best weather window, everybody tries to climb. That's why you get queues at the summit. It's not just because there are so many people um, in at base camp. It's because there are so many people at base camp, all who want to go at the same time, because they've been told you've got 72 hours of good weather coming up. This is the optimum time to climb. Whereas in the 1920s and uh, and even up to the 1950s, there was a lot of suck it and see. You know, the great em- enemy is the monsoon. That's going to bring loads of snow. It's going to make it really dangerous. And so you've got to try and get up before the monsoon arrives. But when is the monsoon going to arrive? Well, we don't know. Tea farmers in Darjeeling say that it usually arrives at this time. But but sometimes it, it, it starts and then it stops for a couple of weeks. But we're not really sure, you know. And this is the whole thing. This is a constant fear of the bad weather coming um, and having to do things quickly in order to beat its arrival, but never sure when it arrive, when it is going to arrive, whereas now um, the sophisticated um, communications technologies getting in sophisticated weather forecasts, which are, which make life much more predictable. Not absolutely predictable because often things go wrong and storms come, which in an unexpected way. But it really changes the game because definitely the enemy in the twenties and thirties is the weather, and that's what's what really has an impact on whether you succeed or not. I can't remember who it was uh, in which expedition, but what wasn't someone getting postcards or telegrams from his cousin or sister in Sri Lanka that was being yeah. sent up and like, like the monsoon's here yet. It hasn't arrived. And they were, I mean, that that's how they were figuring out where the monsoon was, you know, by seeing where it was in Sri Lanka, which is just mind boggling again, to, when you think about it today. So I did have one last question, uh, actually two last questions. One is a personal one for you. The other one, though, is when the, the avalanche happens in the 19, at the end of the 1922 expedition, they're, only, they're heading up to the North Call, I believe, if, if I remember right. And uh, Mallory's leading them. And there's fresh snow and there's an avalanche and, and, and seven people, seven of the Sherpas die. I think one of the hardest things for a non-mountain person is to understand the why an avalanche like that? Why was why were those difficult conditions at that time, and were just set up for for a disaster like that? Can you explain that a little bit? I mean, basically, avalanches are, are large amounts of snow, and so when there's a lot of snow, it increases the chances of an avalanche. And with the arrival of the the monsoon or the kind of front end of the monsoon, what it brings is lots of moisture into the Himalayas. The Himalayas are very cold, so the moisture condenses and falls as, as snow. And so the, the, the later you leave it, the more chance that you're going to have much more snow. But in particular, what is really dangerous is when you have layers of um, snow which has been frozen below and then lots of fresh snow on top uh, because the, that is the kind of condition where the, the, if, you get a, if there's a sufficient accumulation of, of snow on top, then it's in a very precarious position. I mean, avalanches happen on mountains without any people there. Avalanches don't just happen because somebody tries to cross a slope, uh, which is kind of heavily burdened with snow. They, they're kind of a natural occurrence, you know, and snow accumulates, it gets to a point where the angle of the slope is, is severe enough for it to start coming downhill, you know. But if you also happen to be trying to walk across a, um, a slope which is kind of burdened with this enormous amount of snow, and, and particularly if there's a cold layer underneath and a, a fresher layer on top, then that snow is liable to kind of break off. But the, the conditions in, this, in the Himalayas are kind of different from the conditions in Europe because uh, of the topography and the climate. And so people hadn't had experience of this. They didn't they didn't really know. They didn't understand snow conditions. And so they just made a misjudgment and thinking that it was safe and it wasn't. My last question then, before we wrap up, do you have any uh, any plans for the future for another book or 
is there any subject or topic that you're you're aiming at or or not doing the story of the 1922 expedition got me interested in these characters and their story doesn't end in 22 it kind of ends in 24 and so although my initial interest in in the 22 expedition was because people hadn't really written quite so much about it in comparison with the 1924 I kind of part of me feels I'd like to bring these characters to the end of their story to Mallory to the end of his story Bruce to the end of his story what happened next with Finch and so that's what I'm thinking about at the moment I'm not I I don't really want to go off and try and find Irvin's body truth of the matter is that in 1924 it was an open question as to quite what had happened and and today it's an open question as to quite what had happened there's a little bit more information available obviously the finding of Mallory's body uh, was a significant event but but I don't think people are any clearer or can be any more definitive about um, whether Mallory and Irvin reached the summit or not um, that now as they were then you know and uh, so so I don't but I don't think that's necessarily the only interesting issue there and um, so so I'm kind of interested in that in trying to finish this story take them to the end of the line what happened next yeah i i kind of had that feeling when i did i did the mallory series and i just said this is only part of the story my title of the podcast was george mallory and the assault on everest and i followed it up with hillary and tenzing and the conquest of everest because i almost see everest as the overarching character of the story because I was just like, we have to do that next step. And I wasn't planning on doing Tenzing and, and Hillary right after it, but I said, I had to do it. Cause right. so I totally understand you, you wanting to, to finish up that story. Mick, I want to thank you very much for spending the last hour sitting with us and chatting about uh, your new book, uh, Everest 1922. It is out now. It's a great, I want to say very geeky history, nerdy kind of thing, because that's what I come from. And I love the detail and so forth that you find in the book. And I recommend people pick it up if if they're interested in this kind of thing. But again, thank you very much for being here. Well, thank you. Nice to speak to you. We've had Mick Conifray, uh, the author of Everest 1922, the epic story of the first attempt on the world's highest mountain. I've had a great time. Thanks much. I want to again thank author McConaughey for taking part in this interview. He was a great sport and tackled every question I threw at him. If you're interested in learning more about Everest 1922, there are links in the show notes, as well as on our website, explorerspodcast.com. So again, thanks to McConaughey. I hope you enjoyed the interview. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other first-rate podcasts, including Art Smart and Legends of the Old West.